This is episode number 183 with Chris Cresser. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I just wanted to quickly remind you that if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Mine is Himalaya. For those of you that have not heard of Himalaya, it's an epic brand new podcast app, which has so many awesome and unique features no other podcast app has, like episode and channel playlists. It's free, so easy to find new shows, and is really user-friendly. So head on over to the app or Google Play Store to download it today. Don't forget to follow me once you're done so that you can listen to my episodes one day earlier than they're usually released. Pretty cool, huh? This episode is brought to you by Uveda. As you guys know, I'm obsessed with Ayurveda and Uveda is an epic, heart-centered, family-owned Ayurvedic company with a larger-than-life vision to create a healthier, happier world using the intelligence of Mother Nature. Now, I truly wish that none of us needed supplements. But in this modern world, with the depletion in our soil and with the full lives we all lead these days, sometimes our bodies need some extra love and support. This is why I love Uveda. They are such high-grade, Ayurvedically developed supplements to support not only your body, but your mind and soul too, helping you rebalance and come back to homeostasis, which is what the body wants. I love their mood supplements and love how they come in individual packs, perfect for someone who travels as much as I do. Now I've teamed up with Uveda to give you, the Epic MA Tribe, 35% off your first order. So all you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash Uveda, and that is spelt Y-O-U-V-E-D-A, and you can get your 35% off your first order right now. Chris Cresser is the CEO of Cresser Institute and the co-director of the Californian Center for Functional Medicine. He is also the creator of chriscresser.com and is a New York Times best-selling author of The Paleo Cure. He was named one of 100's most influential people in health and fitness by greatest.com And his blog is one of the most top-ranked natural health websites in the world. How cool is that? And I've been following Chris and his podcast for years. He is such a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so excited for you guys to dive into this episode today. Because in this episode, we chat about his story from surfing around the world to getting sick to where he is today. What is functional medicine? What is unconventional medicine? The biggest challenge we currently see in the healthcare system, 
how to get healthy, well, and thrive, why most disease is not genetic, how to make healthy food and lifestyle choices, the phrase and mantra you need to live by when it comes to your food and health, his thoughts on gluten, his thoughts on dairy, why we need to take an individual approach to what we eat, the four lifestyle factors you also need to consider for epic health, how to turn your genes on and off, how to reduce stress, the power of a digital detox and how to actually do it, plus so much more. And for everything that Chris and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes and that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 183. But before we dive into today's epic episode, I want to read the review of the week. And this review comes from Joey LC and it's a five-star review titled Truly Life-Changing. And she says, each day I'm gradually trying to build my body and mind into the best they can be. And this podcast has helped me so much along the way, helping me become more in touch with myself whilst learning about why things happen to my body and teaching me to love, accept and nourish myself. I couldn't recommend it enough. Thank you so much, Joey. I'm so grateful for that beautiful review. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave me that review right now. And without further ado, let's bring on the one, the only Chris Kresser. Welcome, Chris. I am so excited to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming and we're finally here, which is awesome. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, Let's see. So this morning I had a a train ride. I was doing a talk in Sacramento, which is about an hour and a half away, and I had to catch the train and I didn't have any breakfast. So I just had coffee for breakfast. It was intermittent fasting day. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, like I said, it's been a long time coming to get you on this show, and I'm so excited for my tribe to hear from you because you know your podcast has been so influential in my health and wellness journey, and your books and your website. You give so much and you share so much. But for those that don't know you, can you tell us about your story and how you got to where you are today doing the wonderful work that you now do? Uh, Well, thank you for inviting me, Melissa, and it's a pleasure to be here. Happy we were finally able to work through our our crazy logistical issues. (laughs) So yeah, I didn't actually intend to have a career in, in medicine and healthcare. That was not my original plan. And I was actually working in film production. This was a long time ago now. And I decided to take some time off. And actually, uh, uh, that decision was partly made for me too. Uh, There were just a number of things that happened all at once, which sent a message to me that it was a good time to, you know, step back and take some time off and contemplate what might be next for me. So I I basically sold everything that I owned and including a house that I had purchase in Hermosa Beach to fund an around the world trip. So my plan was to be gone for maybe 18 months or two years and 
I'm a lifelong surfer, so I had a, a list of places that I'd, I'd wanted to go, starting with Indonesia. But actually, I began in Thailand because I wanted to. There was a 30-day month-long meditation retreat that I wanted to do at the start of my trip. I thought that would be a good way to start my journey, and so I did that. I was in Thailand for three months. I was doing meditation retreats, and I was studying traditional Thai massage in a Lahu Hill Tribe village above Chiang Mai with a teacher named Ashokananda, and that was amazing. That was an incredible way to start my trip, and. In the meantime, I was swimming and um, you know getting getting ready for surfing eight hours a day in in, in Indonesia, <clears throat> and so I made it to Indonesia. I spent a few months there, and I was surfing at a place called Lakey Peak, which some of your listeners who are surfers will, will be aware of. And I got really really sick there, and a bunch of other people who were there, Aussies and a few Americans, also got sick. And what had happened was the there was a trench of stagnant water where cows were kind of milling around and defecating right next to the river mouth. And the locals dug a, a trench to drain that stagnant pool that went into the river mouth and that water went out into the surf break. And so a number of us who were there got you know, violently ill. And I don't really remember much of those the first three days. I was, you know, I was vomiting, diarrhea, delirium, high fever. And actually an Aussie that I was staying with had happened to have some antibiotics in his medical kit. And I, I took them and was able to kind of get back from the the edge. And then I continued to travel from there. I went to the Maldives next and then to Reunion Island, uh, Mauritius, and South Africa, and then was well for you know maybe six to nine months after that. But then uh, was coming back and was in Australia actually, living in Byron Bay, and started to feel worse again. Started to develop digestive symptoms again, and this time I was getting fatigue and muscle aches and a bunch of other symptoms. And I was about, I was a little over a year into my trip at this point, but it, it started to get worse and worse and it became clear that I, I wasn't going to be able to keep traveling. So I went home to the States and I saw, you know, so just con- went to my conventional doctor and he suspected it was, you know, some kind of lingering parasitic thing, gave me flagell metronidazole, which is a anti-parasitic medication and, you know, said, come, come back if it, if it, if it keeps up. And, you know, very long story short, it took about 10 years of just a crazy level of exploration, investigation, experimentation, trial and error, every special diet that you can imagine, you know, thousands of thousands of dollars of supplements, most of which didn't work. Everything from, you know, seeing top tropical disease specialists in in the United States and other countries to energy healers and shamans to living at the Esalen Institute for two years in Big Sur, which is a psycho-spiritual retreat center that's been around for a long time. I'm sure uh, many of your listeners have heard of it to kind of explore the psycho-spiritual, emotional roots of the condition and, you know, try to figure out why I wasn't getting better. And I, I just, you know, I left no stone unturned. And eventually through that process was able to, you know, work my way back to health. And, and then in, in, during that time, as I was regaining my health, people around me 
started to ask me questions, you know, about what, what was happening and what I was learning. And they saw the transformation that was happening and they were curious. And, you know, people who had their own health issues started to reach out. And after a while, I started to get the idea that maybe I could translate this experience that I had had into a way of helping other people and, you know, serve others in, that were struggling with a similar process. So I thought about what I, how I might want to do that. I considered medical school. And then I interviewed 10 different doctors that I knew and eight of, out of 10 of them told me, advised me against <laughs> going into medicine. And of course, I was doing my own research too and just didn't feel like that was the, the right path for me. And, and one of the practitioners that had been most instrumental in my own healing journey was an acupuncturist. And so I decided to go back and study acupuncture and integrative medicine. In California, where I live, acupuncturists are considered primary care providers. So we're able to order blood testing and other kinds of lab testing and make diagnoses and prescribe treatment. And, and our scope of practice is, is much bigger than in, in many other places. And, and, and therefore, our training lasts a lot longer. And, and we have to learn a lot of allopathic Western medicine as well, which I really enjoyed. And while I was in school, I discovered functional medicine. And, you know, we can talk more about that. But as soon as I discovered functional medicine, that that was it. I, I knew that was the path for me. And I, I never actually practiced acupuncture professionally outside of school because I just opened a functional medicine practice right when I finished my training. And that was 10 years ago. So one thing led to another and here I am. So what is functional medicine? How is it different? I, I like to start with an analogy as an answer to that question. So if you imagine you're, you have a rock in your shoe and it's making your foot hurt, in a conventional medical system, you might get a prescription for ibuprofen or painkiller. And, you know, that, that will be helpful to some extent in reducing the pain. But in functional medicine, we, we would, you know, ask you to take off your shoe and dump the rock out. And, that, you know, that's, that's perhaps overly simplistic, but functional medicine is really oriented towards identifying and addressing the underlying cause of a, of a health condition instead of just suppressing symptoms with drugs, which tends to be the conventional approach. And it's really more of a systems-based approach where we're looking at the, the function of the body overall all of, in all of the different systems, the gut, the endocrine system, the nervous system, the immune system. And we're looking for pathologies or dysfunctions there that, that, that eventually cause the symptoms. And then we're addressing those at that level as the way of dealing with the symptoms rather than just putting band-aids on, on, on the symptoms themselves. Mm, so really getting to the root cause of the issue. Exactly. Mm. So your latest book, Unconventional Medicine. So what is unconventional medicine? Well, that's just another term for functional medicine, really, or a play on words, since, of course, we all you know, refer to conventional medicine as just the dominant paradigm system that we're, we're all familiar with. And conventional medicine, as we know it, is incredible in, in certain areas. You know, the, it's, it's the phenomenal way of dealing with trauma, with emergencies, with infections and other acute problems. I often say, you know, if I get hit by a bus, I definitely want to be taken to the hospital and I want to benefit from the amazing 
tools that, that conventional medicine has to offer. And we're starting to be able to restore sight to the blind. And, you know, there's, there's a, a real possibility that we might be able to fight cancer with nanorobots in our lifetime. And these, these are amazing gifts that allopathic medicine has offered us. It's dramatically reduced the rate of deaths from infectious disease, you know, our understanding of you know, sepsis and the importance of clean operating environments has, you know, dr- dramatically improved the outcomes of surgery. And there's so many things that uh, conventional medicine has, has offered, but what it's not good at is addressing chronic disease. And chronic disease now is by far the biggest challenge that we face from a healthcare perspective. Do you think that's the biggest challenge you see right now in the healthcare system? Oh, there's absolutely no question. I mean, a lot of the statistics are US-based, but you can assume that they're similar in, in Australia and, and in other parts of the industrialized world. But to give you an idea, in the US, 40% of Americans now has a chronic disease and 60% have multiple chronic diseases. Seven of 10 deaths are caused by chronic disease, including three of the four top causes of death. And 90% of the $3.5 trillion that the U.S. spends on healthcare as of 2017 goes towards the treatment of chronic disease. So it's, you know, that is the biggest issue. You know, it's, it, we're arguably in a, in a privileged place now because back in 1900, the top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. And our medical system evolved in that environment and in in large part was a response to to those needs at that time. You know, in the 1900s, the reason that people went to a doctor was because they had an injury, you know, maybe a a broken bone or they they had pain in their appendix and needed an appendicitis, needed to have surgery or they had some kind of infection and it was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, a single problem, single doctor, single treatment, and that was it. But if you fast forward to today, we have a totally different landscape where, as I said, you have people that have multiple chronic diseases. These are complex conditions that last for a lifetime rather than just being acute problems. And they often We'll see multiple doctors over a long period of time and be taking multiple treatments. So the level of complexity has increased dramatically, but the model that we're using and still trying to apply to chronic disease is the same one that was developed in response to acute problems, which were the biggest challenge before. And that's where the mismatch is happening. Mm. So what can we do? Like, what can we do personally on an individual level in our own home to really make sure that we are thriving on every level? Because I feel like we really do need to take back control in our own home Mm -hmm. and start making some subtle shifts and implement them into our life. But in your opinion, like, what can we do? Well, if, if you consider the fact that 85% of the risk of disease is not genetic. So less than 15% of the risk of disease is genetic. And if you consider that 90% of what determines our lifespan is also not genetic, it's environmental, then the conclusion there is that 
changing our diet, our lifestyle, and our behavior is the single most important step that we can take to prevent and even reverse chronic disease. And that's a good news, bad news situation. It's, it's very good news because that control is in our hands. You know, we are, are each individual person is the one that gets to make those decisions about how to change our diet and our lifestyle and our behavior. And we don't need to rely on an external authority like a doctor, you know, to be able to take those positive steps to improve our health. So I think that that's tremendously empowering to know that most disease is not genetic and therefore we have control, a large degree of control in our lives through the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis of our health. The downside of that is that most people are not making good choices. And I don't see this as an individual failing. I see it as a deeply entrenched social problem, an economic problem, and also just a problem without how our brains are wired and the mismatch between our modern environment and our genes and our biology. So let me give you an example of that. You know, human beings evolved in an environment of food scarcity. I mean, starvation was always a much bigger threat up until very recently than eating too much. And so our brains are wired in such a way that we will seek out foods that are highly palatable and rewarding because they they would have helped us survive in times where food was occasionally scarce. And, and so if we came across a, an abundant source of calories, like a beehive with honey, we would eat as much of it as we possibly could. And that would help us to get through the times where we didn't have as much access to food. So that worked really well in an environment of food scarcity, but you can see what the problem might be in the modern environment where we have 24-7 access to sugar and other processed and refined foods that trigger those same reward mechanisms in our brain. But unlike living in the Paleolithic era, there's really no limit to the amounts of foods that we can consume. So that's, you know, one area where our 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 brains sort of work against us making healthy choices. And I I think, you know, part of our our challenge as individuals is understanding that and then structuring our environment and our lives in such a way that we are mitigating the influence of those of those factors uh, so that we support ourselves and each other in making healthy choices. Yeah, I totally agree. So what are some of the healthy choices that we can make in our homes today and lifestyle choices as well? Well, food is always a good starting place. And of course, there's lots of discussion and disagreement about which diet is the right diet. And you know we can go into as little or as much detail as you want there. But I would say a really good starting place for most people is just a four-word diet or phrase, which is just eat real food. So this means, you know, if it comes in a bag or a box, you probably shouldn't be eating a lot of it. You know, you want to stick with fresh, whole, nutrient-dense foods, meat and fish, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, and some some starchy plants, and maybe some properly prepared grains and legumes if you ta- you know, if you do okay with those, as well as, you know, full fat or fermented dairy products if you do okay with those. Not everybody does. But these are the foods that 
our ancestors have been eating for millennia in the case of the former foods and for the last you know, 10 or 11,000 years in the case of dairy products and grains. Whereas if you look at the foods that comprise like 60% now of Americans' diets, they're highly processed and refined foods. So the top six foods based on calorie intake in, in the U.S. are now bread, sugar-sweetened beverages, alcohol, pizza, chicken dishes, mostly fried chicken like chicken nuggets, and grain-based desserts. So that is very far cry from what our typical ancestral diet is. And, and our ancestral diet was naturally low in calories, nutrient-dense, and anti-inflammatory, whereas our current modern diet is just the opposite of that, that not high in calories, pro-inflammatory, and nutrient-poor. So that's always the starting place. So what about taking into consideration people's Ayurvedic body type? Have you done a lot of that? Have you like dug into Ayurveda? I'm familiar with Ayurveda. I'm not an expert in Ayurveda because I, I studied Chinese medicine. And you know, Chinese medicine has its own way of personalizing the diet based on the what's happening, you know, in, in the body and and the and the person's type, the constitutional type. I think personalization and customization is very important. And mm-hmm. there are lots of different ways to look at it. You know, whether you're looking through the Ayurvedic lens or the Chinese medicine lens or whether you're looking through the lens of what is your activity level, what are your goals? Are you trying to lose weight? Are you trying to put on muscle? Are you pregnant or breastfeeding? Are you trying to deal with an autoimmune disease or hypothyroidism or another condition? The answers to all of those questions will affect what an optimal diet is for you. So if you're 60 pounds overweight and you spend most of your day sitting and you have type 2 diabetes, your diet should look pretty different than someone who is training for six hours a day for a national sports competition and is trying to add muscle and improve their performance. Those are two very different scenarios. And yet in the conventional discussion about diet, you see uniform recommendations that are somehow supposed to apply to both of those people. And I think we're already starting to see this and I'm glad and we're going to see a lot more of it in the near future, which is a a move away from these kind of blanket, everyone should follow a low fat diet, everyone should follow a low carb diet, or everyone should do a keto diet or this diet or that diet. And we're going to move a lot more toward personalization and the recognition that there's no one size fits all approach that works for everybody and that we need to really, you know, there are some core principles that are consistent for everybody. Like nobody thrives on donuts and cheese doodles and big big gulps. Like we can say that with certainty, but there's also a lot of room for variation. And, and so I think that has been left out of the discussion over the past few decades. And finally, we're, we're starting to move in that right in the right direction there. Yeah, I think it's so important. We really do take an individual approach. And I love that about you. But you know, you mentioned that not everyone thrives on donuts and those sorts of things. But what is your perspective mm-hmm. on gluten, dairy and refined sugar? Well, I think gluten, if you look at it as a spectrum, you know, like on the one end, you have some people who say, gluten is a problem for everybody and nobody should ever eat gluten. On the other end, you have people who say, 
gluten is only an issue for celiacs. And if you don't have celiac disease, then you're just imagining a reaction to gluten. As is often the case with these kind of polarized issues, I find myself landing somewhere in the middle. I, I think that non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity is absolutely real. There's plenty of evidence to support that. I've written many articles on that topic with all exhaustively referenced but with peer-reviewed studies. So I am completely convinced that there are many people with gluten intolerance that do not have celiac and and that the prep the prevalence of that is growing and is higher than 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 we currently under, understand at the same time i don't believe that it's 100% i don't think that 100% of the population has an immunological reaction to gluten when they eat it having said that when you look at the spectrum of foods that tends to have gluten in them, it's it's not. They're usually not great foods, right? So they're bread, cookies, crackers, lots of refined flour products. They tend to also typically have sugar, a lot of sugar in them, and so removing gluten-containing foods from the diet can it can often be beneficial, even if someone is not gluten intolerant for that reason, with a significant caveat. What I sometimes see is people become, you know, they go gluten-free, but then they just replace all of those foods that I just mentioned with gluten-free varieties of those foods. So they're eating rice, you know, bread that's made from rice flour or or sorghum or other gluten-free flours. And then they're eating all kinds of sweet baked goods and treats that are made with gluten-free flours and, and pancakes from gluten-free flours. And so that might be an improvement if someone truly is gluten intolerant, at least in terms of the immunological reaction. But it's not an improvement in terms of the nutrient density or inflammatory load of the diet. Mm. And what about dairy? What is your thoughts on dairy? Dairy, my thoughts are that my thoughts are informed by the research and by our understanding of physiology and, and the genetics that determine lactose tolerance or intolerance. So about 11,000, 12,000 years ago, no humans consumed dairy products because we didn't produce lactase, the enzyme required to digest lactose into adulthood. We, Because humans didn't consume dairy from other animals and only just through mothers, we just consumed mother's milk while we were breastfeeding. As soon as we were weaned, there was no longer any need to continue to produce lactase that enzyme that digests lactose. And so the body is very efficient. So there was no need you know, to, to, for any adult human to have lactase. But then at some point around 11,000 years ago, somewhere we think in the Middle East, what is currently the Middle East now, there was a, a spontaneous genetic polymorphism or mutation that allowed for ongoing lactase production into adulthood that may have happened along with you know cows being domesticated or cattle being domesticated and humans starting to consume dairy and during periods of drought and famine dairy products like milk were helped people survive because they provided a source of sustenance and also of hydration and so people who had the genetic polymorphism that enabled them to digest lactose would have had a survival advantage and so those genes were selected for and that genetic mutation then spread 
pretty rapidly to various parts of the world. So that today, about a third of people now around the world, particularly people of European and Northern European descent, have lactase persistence. So they have the ability to digest lactose in adulthood. When you look at the studies on dairy, and I've also written many articles about this, so you can just Google my name and and dairy and you'll find them. You see that full fat and fermented dairy, but not low fat or non-fat dairy is associated with lower rates of obesity, better blood sugar control, and lower rates of cardiovascular disease, as well as other health benefits. And they're not sure why, but one of the one of the theories is that full-fat dairy has some beneficial fats like conjugated linolenic acid, which are not found in many other foods, but are anti-inflammatory and, and provide a lot of benefits. Full-fat grass-fed dairy in particular is rich in certain nutrients that are also not easy to obtain from other foods. So when you look at the research and you consider the genetic story that I mentioned, then it seems clear to me that full-fat dairy can be beneficial for people that tolerate it well. And that's the difference because some people don't tolerate it well. And for those people, it will not be beneficial. But a lot of people aren't eating raw, organic, full-fat dairy. They're they're eating, sorry, drinking, you know, commercial right. and commercial dairy that is just full of junk and mm-hmm. it's not actually dairy. So... Yeah. This is where yeah. a lot of people are going wrong. It's it's what you know, this is where we need to read the labels and we need to be really mindful of what we're drinking and purchasing. Absolutely. I mean, so you have like non-fat, non-organic milk is a completely different food than full fat, organic, and even raw milk mm. or just full fat organic milk. And those are very different in their composition than something like yogurt or kefir or ghee or butter or full fat cream. And even within, you know, the category of yogurt, if you go into the store, you, you know, you'll see like 90% of the yogurts are full of sugar. Yep. You know, very high in sugar content. And then you and you'll see a, a couple varieties that are just plain, you know, plain full fat yogurt. Those are the ones we we want, presuming we can tolerate dairy products. But as you pointed out, most of what people are buying are the ones that are loaded with sugar. And they may not even know that. They may just assume, oh, there's some fruit in here, you know, fruit's healthy. But if you look at the label, you see it's got, you know, as much sugar as a candy bar or, you know, as a as a cookie or something like that. This is why reading the ingredients list is so important. If you are buying anything in a packet or a box or a carton, please, please, please read the ingredients. I remember many years ago, I went home to my parents' house and I walked into their pantry and there was a cereal in there. And I said, Dad, I just want to show you what's What's in this? I just want to, and, and I said, read it out to me, read out the ingredients. And he couldn't pronounce some of the words. Like they were, he was like, what? Oh yeah. You need a PhD in, in, in science for sure. And you know, biochemistry to be able to pronounce those. Oh, absolutely. And so he was, he was reading them and he goes, what, what's that? And I was like, exactly. So let's Google it. And he said, but that is just such false marketing. It's got fruit on the box. And my husband and I burst out laughing. 
because he was so sweet. He said it so innocently. He was like, but it's got mm-hmm. fruit on the box. And we, right. we were just like, oh, Dad, you're the cutest thing ever. But, you know, we were teaching him that, you know, marketing is very deceptive yeah. and we need to be super mindful that, like you said before, just eat real food. You know, something that is grown in Mother Nature, a cereal box is not grown on a tree out in nature. So anything that is in a box or a packet or a carton, I really just want to encourage you guys to pick it up and just read the ingredients. It's usually very, 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 very small on the back, down the bottom, so you can't find it, but please do it. You know, on the front, it'll say high in fiber and things like that. But I really want to encourage everybody to just be super mindful because there's so many hidden sugars in these products and they're not going to be beneficial for you. They're going to create inflammation in the body. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on, you know, reducing inflammation. It's not just about the diet. It's, you know, being disease-free. It's not just about the diet. So what else do we need to consider? Well, I think the the four most important pillars are sleep, physical activity, stress management, and diet. So those, uh, in terms of inflammation and also just general disease prevention and wellness, I think those should be the starting place for most people. So for sleep, we now have an epidemic of sleep deprivation in in the US. In 1960, just 2% of Americans got fewer than six hours a night of sleep. And now that's up to 33% last time I, you know, last statistic that I saw. So that's a huge shift in just a half century. And actually it was, I mentioned I was coming home this morning from a presentation I gave in Sacramento last night. And the topic of that talk was gene expression, epigenetics. And I have a slide where I talk about a study that showed that they actually took people and separated them into two groups. And that one group, they gave six hours of sleep a night for one week. And then the other control group, they allowed to sleep for 10 hours. And they found that over 700 genes were altered in the sleep-restricted group. And those genes were involved in everything from stress response to metabolism and blood sugar regulation to the regulation of other genes. So I think it's, you know, there's a, a mountain of evidence now showing that sleep, getting, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep is absolutely critical for, for our health and prevention of disease. And yet we're really moving in the wrong direction there, you know, as a global society. Mm, absolutely. Almost every single person on this show has mentioned the benefits of sleep. I don't think there's one guest that hasn't spoken yeah. about the importance of sleep. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you still haven't gotten onto your sleep and made it a priority, make this your episode that shifts something for for you. You know, become really strict with your sleep and and make it a priority because it really does matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there's actually I, I would go as far as saying that if you if you're not sleeping enough, nothing else you do will have you know as much of an impact. And you you can't like diet yourself out of bad sleep. So I, I have you know I've I've had a number of patients and other people who you know they've got their diet completely wired, every last nuance is just totally dialed in, and yet they are you know getting four hours of sleep a night. And I tell them, you know, that's, that's like doing 
every health thing right and then texting while you're driving all the time you know like that's you could do every health thing right and you still could easily die if you die in a car accident because you're texting and not paying attention then all of that work you put in you know optimizing your diet is going to be worthless so sleep is one of those kind of x factors where you know are deal breakers really like where no matter what else you're doing if you're not getting enough sleep it's going to significantly interfere with uh, the benefits of those other things that you're doing. So mm-hmm. that's super important. Stress is another huge one. And I think through psychoneuroimmunoendocrinology and other fascinating fields of study, we're learning even more about the effects of stress on our health and on disease. And, you know, we live in a, I think it's a pretty stressful time to be alive right now. There's technology, constant distractions related to that, and a, a lot of news, and it's not always good. And most families, both parents are working outside of the house. And, you know, it's it seems like there's just a lot of different things that are competing for, for our attention. And, and yet, there are steps that can be taken to mitigate the impact of that stress. You know, Putting guardrails around our use of technology is one that I've been talking a lot about lately. You know, we don't have to just accept the default with with our smartphones and other devices where we're getting notified every 10 seconds when, you know, somebody likes an Instagram post or, you know, responds to a tweet. Like, is it really necessary that we get notified when that happens? You know, we can learn mindfulness or meditation practices or do yoga or tai chi or qigong and you know we can build these practices and habits that actually help to mitigate some of this the stress that we can't avoid because for most of us you know stress reduction is not necessarily even possible we might be able to have some impact there but it's really more that's why it's called I call it stress management because it's it's a question of how do you cope with the stress that you can't avoid and how do you build practices and habits in your life that that help to turn off that fight or flight response and and shift you into the rest and digest response my constant mission that is mm-hmm. I, all of us yeah it's a, it's always a work in progress oh, i don't yeah. know anybody who's perfect in that area yeah if anyone listening is can you please let me know cuz i'd like to learn for you, from you and i'd like to have you on my show mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely an area of focus for me. And it's it's something I feel that I've, I mean, I've worked harder at it than anything else. You know, diet for me is, is relatively easy to tinker with. I'm, I'm not one of those people that really struggles a lot with like food addiction or, you know, like certain foods that I wish I could eat that I don't eat now. It's, it's relatively straightforward for me, relatively easy. Sleep actually is, you know, relatively straightforward for me i just being a lifelong surfer i always woke up early in the morning and kind of, you know had no trouble going to bed early so so that came pretty easily the stress part is the hardest and i don't think you're alone there melissa <laughs> a lot of people listening probably have the the same experience because you know if we want to be a good parent we want to make an impact in the world and help other people. We want to be successful. We want to take care of ourselves, maintain our exercise routine, you know, go to the farmer's market so we can eat healthy. Like that's a, there's a lot to fit in and it's 
I think it, again, it's just a part of our modern modern world. And I think with the addition of these of the internet and social media and technologies, that's been a blessing in many ways. I mean, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? <laughs> if 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 that weren't if those technologies weren't available. So I'm I'm grateful for them. But at the same time, as I said before, I think this default assumption that came with the introduction of these technologies, which is like that there should be no boundaries around my attention or time and that at any moment I should just be available for somebody to text me or call me or for my phone to send me a notification about something that is relatively trivial and not important and understanding now as we do that these all of those notifications and those you know email bells ringing and you know sounds and visual things that we see on our phone trigger the same reward mechanisms in our brain that are triggered when we use you know addictive substances or when we play a slot machine and, or or do a, a, any other kind of gambling they're addictive and so for myself, I found that one of the areas where I've had the most leverage in terms of winning back some time and gaining some space to breathe in and and really like slowing down a little bit has been uh, creating some really pretty strong boundaries and guidelines around my technology usage, and that's that's been for me at least one of the areas of you know, biggest transformation. Me too. So what have you done? What are some of the boundaries just to give our listeners a little bit of inspiration of some things that they could potentially try? Because for me, it's the same. And I work from home. So it's not like yeah. I it's not like I I can kind of close my laptop and then I leave that office and I and I come home. Like my yeah. office and my home are in the same space. So I have to be even more diligent with the boundaries that I set myself. And I'm not always excellent at this. Mm -hmm. I always have my phone on silent. So there's never any dinging or buzzing or anything like that. I've turned off all of the notifications. You know, I've I've turned off voicemail on my phone. There's a few things Mm -hmm. I've done. But mm-hmm. it's that constant feeling like I have to be available for my team and for, yeah, mainly my team and my business and having to yeah. feel like I'm, I'm always going to be available for them, which I'm working mm-hmm. with at the moment. But what are some of the boundaries you've set around technology for yourself? Well, I have a, I have a good solution for that problem of always being available for your team. Just take a long vacation and don't answer any emails or text messages or phone calls. I'm I'm actually totally serious. That, that's how I address that problem because I was in the same boat a few years ago. And, you know, I, I, I didn't just do that with no preparation, but I, you know, over time hired people that were competent and, and really able to step in and do what was required. But I noticed that because I had created a dynamic for so long where I was the one that was making the final decisions on things. And, you know, people, even when they were capable of making the decisions themselves, would kind of habitually just come to me to make the decision because that was the way it had always been done. And so I would end up being the bottleneck and having to feel like I was available more than I wanted to be. And at one point, I just decided that I couldn't go on that way anymore. And I wasn't willing to do it. And I did a 
10 day digital detox. So uh, I went on a, a trip. Uh, I think can't remember where that first one was. It might have been Costa Rica or Nicaragua. And I just turned off my phone and I put an autoresponder on my email. And I'll tell you what, how I do it now because it's a little bit different. But the autoresponder said, you know, I'm away on vacation. I'm taking some much needed downtime. And, you know, if you need help, contact such and such person. And I told my staff, do not contact me unless, like, you know, the business is failing and going under, or there's, you know, someone has robbed the bank or, you know, something like that. Like, otherwise, I trust you to figure out what you need to do. And that was a huge shift for them and for me. And since then, I've been doing an annual digital detox, usually about 10 days. This is one of the strategies that I really recommend where I completely disconnect from the internet, from social media, from my phone, from my email. And I just enjoy being wherever I am. Usually I'm somewhere warm and surfing with my family. Sometimes I've done meditation retreats. You know, there, there are lots of different ways you can do it. But just having that complete break from work and all things work-related and also from technology and social media and all of that is really, has been really liberating and, and transformative for me. Now when I do it, I've gone a step further because what I found when I came back from those digital detoxes, it was really stressful because there was like 5 billion emails <laughs> you know, waiting in my, in my inbox oh my when gosh. I got home. And I was just totally dreading it, you know, and, and to the point where like, I, I wasn't looking forward to my trips because I was dreading coming back from them. And then I read about a French company that had decided that when their employees go on vacation, that they will delete their emails while they're gone. I love that. Not, not, not archive them, not put them in a folder, literally delete them. And they're, they have an autoresponder too that, that goes back to the person and says, you know, sorry, uh, Jacques is on vacation and we want him to be able to fully rest and enjoy his trip and not worry about coming back to an overflowing inbox. So we are deleting this email. And if you need, you know, attention right away, contact, you know, this other person. And if not, then please resend this email on, you know, October 15th when Jacques gets back from his vacation. So now that's what I do. And I've done that on my last two or three digital detoxes. And it's absolutely liberating to come home to a zero inbox and to know that if someone really did need something, they were able to get help from someone else in the company. And if, if not, then they would just send the emails again. And, I, and something very interesting happened there where the first time I did that and came back, I had about six people email me you know, the day after I got back and said, oh my God, that's brilliant. I'm totally stealing that. I'm so jealous that you do that. I want to do it myself. And, you know, it, I, I never have, I've not had a single email from anybody saying, I can't believe you took all that time off and deleted your email. Cause look, everybody knows that it's, that's a terrible place to be. Like I haven't had a single person express any frustration with that. And it's been really incredible for me as, as a strategy for rejuvenating. And now in addition to the 10 days that I do once a year, I also do shorter periods of that throughout the year, maybe three three days here, four days there, 
on a kind of quarterly basis. And I, I can't tell you how much I look forward to those times. And to be honest, <laughs> the only downside of, of it is toward the end of those times is, is like, you know, when I start coming back, I, I find it sometimes hard to re-engage after I've, I've been on those digital detoxes. Mm, I've actually seen people do that. My husband did that last year. He made a declaration that he was going to quit email in about Mm -hmm. June, July last year because he realized he was just spending so much of his time in his inbox and he wasn't getting what he wanted to do. He's a musician, but he also Mm -hmm. is an entrepreneur and he was a movie producer. And so he had so many different businesses and he just was stuck in his inbox. And so he was like, I'm retiring from email. He actually did a podcast episode on his show about it. And he did the Mm -hmm. same thing. Like he literally put an autoresponder on that said, "I this will be deleted when we went on holidays. We went to Greece for three weeks and he did that then. And then he now has an, an assistant who checks his emails for him. And then once a day, she will send him a Voxer message, which is like voice message you know, asking yeah. him and, and Tim Ferriss does this as well. So he gets a phone call mm-hmm. once a day at the end of the day from his assistant saying, Hey, there's three emails that I just need to quickly ask you about. So and so da da da. And then that's it. So he literally is spending, you know, two or three minutes chatting about his emails with his manager and then moving on. And I think that's really, really powerful. So I think as well, we teach people how to communicate with us. You know, if you're constantly sending emails all the time about little things, like you're then teaching those people that that's how you respond. So often if some people email me, I will just send them a voice message back. They've sent me this massive long email. Like I got this huge long email from this girl and there's this (laughs) one person in my life who loves to just Mm. send really, really long emails. (laughs) And they're not necessary. They're really not necessary. And I'd voice message her back and just say, yeah, babe, got the email. All good. Let's do it. And like, you know, and she's just like, okay, cool. And it's just so simple. So we teach people how to communicate with us. Of course, there are some times where you do need to write a longer email. But yeah, I think what you do every year is just amazing. And then those shorter ones, those shorter digital detoxes are just so powerful. You've inspired me. I'm going to do it. I've only really ever done, you know, one day detoxes and mm-hmm. still I then I then feel anxious coming back to it. So it's kind of defeating yeah. the purpose. So, right. you know, right. I, I'll, I might have to put that. It, it takes a few days. Like it's like a meditation retreat. You know, if you first get there the first day or fasting or a lot of these kinds of things, like the first day or two is usually the hardest. And so if you stop after that, you've only experienced the hard part, <laughs> you know. And, and whereas, if you go a little longer, then you actually start to to enjoy the the fruits of of that labor, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone says that about vipassana, which is the ten day silent mm-hmm. meditation retreat, and they say like the first few days is quite challenging, and then you just, you know, you're riding that wave, and it's so blissful right. and beautiful. And that's why. In the Vipassana tradition, they suggest a 10-day retreat for your first retreat and not a one-day retreat or a two-day retreat because they actually recognize that, you know, that's the hardest part, the first day or two. And so if if people only ever do one or two-day retreats, they'll probably never get, you know, go much further because it's easy to just project that that, 
your one day experience 10 times forward, you know, for 10 days and, and expect that you'll be miserable the entire time. But that's not generally how it works. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the digital detoxes are key. I mean, you mentioned notifications. I think that's important to highlight because it's such a suck of our attention and drain on it. And I, I do the same thing. I, I, the only notifications that I have on my phone are my, you know, my wife calls me I because we have a, a, a daughter and I want to be available for emergencies. And, you know, I'm of the age where <laughs> my friends, I don't get a lot of text messages texting. I mean, I get some, but usually when someone's texting me, it's for a good reason. It's not just chatty texting. So I, my text messages are still turned on for that reason. And, and that's it. So my phone is kind of just a, a phone as far as that goes. Uh, you know, we use Slack for work and, and I, I still do use email when I'm working, but I don't have any of those notifications turned on. And in fact, I, you, you mentioned Tim, you know, he talked many years ago about in a four hour work week about batching. So that's grouping similar types of work together. And so the way I will do it is during a given day, I'll batch my email, my Slack, and Asana, which is our project management system, into two or maybe three periods a day. So let's say from you know 8.30 in the morning until 9, I'll check my email, I'll respond to some emails, I'll check Slack and respond to some of those messages, and I'll check Asana for any messages that I need to respond to there. And then from 9 to 12, I will do focused work. I'll, you know, that might be writing if I'm working on a book or creating a, a presentation or a talk if I have a big talk coming up or, you know, creating some materials for my training program or, you know, whatever it is that requires focused, uninterrupted attention. I will do, you know, during that period of time and I'll take breaks during that period because that's very important for maintaining focus. And then, you know, I might, eat lunch or exercise. And then I might have another period of checking Slack and, and sauna and, and email. And that that's another way of managing stress, actually, because if you're switching your attention back and forth between multiple things throughout the day, like you're working on the computer and you're working on your book and all of a sudden, you know, a notification pops up. So, so such and such emailed. So you switch over there. And then a Slack message comes in and then, oh, a tweet came in and, oh, wait, Facebook, you know, and then you're just jumping from one thing to the next. If you kind of, if you were to imagine somebody acting that out in the physical world, (laughs) it would look ridiculous, right? (laughs) Like going from, you know, running around a room from one thing to the next thing, just kind of frantically. And that's actually what's happening in our brain when we're doing that. And our body responds in a similar way. We don't get physically exhausted like we would if someone was running around the office from what, you know, going from one thing to the next, but we get mentally exhausted from it and it activates the stress response. There's actually research that shows that checking email and so, you know, social media notifications activates the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. And so if you're doing that hundreds of times throughout the day, switching back and forth, which is what most people do who work with computers, then you're basically triggering that fight or flight stress response all day long. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we need to move away from. 
Yeah, I love that. Thank you. You've really inspired me. I'm going to do a digi detox um, and I'm going to implement doing a bigger one once a year. I think, you know, 10 days or a week is such a great idea. You can can email me when you get back and tell me how, how it works. Yeah, absolutely. I'll share my insights with you. I know for me, when I do have massive periods of time when I'm away from my computer and my phone, I feel incredible. Like when I'm having friends over for lunch or a -hmm. dinner party, none of our, none of my friends, we never have our phones on the table ever. Like we may take a photo of the beautiful presentation and then we put our phones away because we want to be present and we might sit there for three hours or something like for a beautiful Sunday lunch or something like that. And for me, I'm not thinking about my phone. Like it's such a beautiful time when I am away from it, but I need to inject that as well throughout my day. So you've inspired me. I will let you know how I go once I've done it. But I'd love to hear now if you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world besides your books, because that's a given. (laughs) That would be presumptuous. Yeah, they should they should be in the school curriculum, absolutely. <clears throat> but what is one book you would choose? The first things that come to mind actually don't have anything to do with diet and or stress or sleep management or anything like that. I, I would say something related to communication. W- one thing that has always struck me is that all the way through elementary school, middle school, high school, and even college, I never had a single class on how to communicate with other people. And it's something we do all day, every day. It's absolutely essential to success in every area of life, unless you're a guru living in a cave. But even then, arguably, you have people coming to see you, so you need to know how to communicate. And it's something that can enrich our life tremendously if we're good at it. And, and we can do it in a heartfelt way where we connect with other people and really relate to them. And it's something that can make our life miserable if we can't, because we can't have relationships, successful relationships. And that means we, we may not have a partner, a family, we may not be successful at work. So just off the, off the top of my head, some, you know, some, something related to communication, there, there are many different books out there. And, you know, I have some favorites, but that would be one thing or another and a book might not be the best vehicle for this so i'm sort of skirting the question but uh, something around just mindfulness and and self-awareness i feel like that is also just a fundamental capacity that we all need to develop and i don't see this as a, a, a you know a religious question I, I think just the the ability to be aware of our own experience and be present to what is happening in our bodies and around us, in the world around us. It's a fundamental human birthright and a fundamental skill or, or capacity that we need to develop in order to be happy and fulfilled and get the most out of life. And yet that is also something that is not really taught or encouraged in, in schools. So those are the two things that come to mind. Yeah, beautiful. That's It's interesting you say about communication. That's why I wrote my second book, Open Wide. It's called Open Wide, Mm. A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships, and Soulful Sex. Because I'd never been taught how to communicate. I've never been taught how to be in a relationship with my friends, with my family, with my husband. You know, this stuff, like you said, hasn't been taught. So that's why I wrote that book. 
so yeah, I think it's very, very important. And relationships are our biggest spiritual assignments and Mm -hmm. we're not taught how to navigate through them. So I agree with you. Some sort of information on communication and relationships is really important. Yeah. I mean, it's really the basis of everything that we do. So, yeah, and there's so many people out there that I've encountered. And I mean, this is something that I don't claim to to be, you know, it's something I've worked on a lot and I'll always be working on it. It's it's a lifelong process of learning. But the unfortunate thing is, you know, when you encounter someone who has many other gifts, you know, that they have trouble sharing with the world because of those challenges in communication and, and being able to form supportive relationships and and to kind of be able to connect with and empathize with and be a part of a group with other people and so yeah that's that's something that is you know, maybe not the typical answer but it's i think it, it's super important yeah absolutely now i'd love to hear about how your day looks and in particular do you have a morning routine i love hearing about how people prime themselves for the day so can you share your routine with us well, that's changed. It changes over time. More recently, my daughter, our daughter is seven and a half. And so my morning routine is spending time with her when she wakes up. If I wake up before her and I have time, I like to do my, my meditation practice. But she has to get up pretty early to get ready for school. And so more recently, that would looks like spending some time with her, maybe uh, reading with her a little bit. And then I typically will put on some music and I'll start cooking her breakfast. And then at some point, my wife gets up and starts making her lunch for school. And we're, we're just pretty much in, you know, get Sylvie to school mode for the first part of the morning. And it's, I really cherish the time to be able to connect with her and and be with her in the mornings before school, before uh, she starts her day and I start my day. And then once she's off to school, I will usually start doing some of my own focused work. So I'll typically start instead of like checking email or social media or something like that, which I actually don't use personally for myself, use it for work, but I don't use social media personally. That's another thing I forgot to mention before in terms of reducing stress. And then, you know, at some point later in the morning, I'll usually do some exercise. So depending on which office I'm working out of, I might go for a swim, I might do some yoga, I might lift weights, I might go on a on a long hike, I might surf if I'm lucky. And that's typically what most mornings look like. I used to have before our daughter was born, or actually before she, even when she was still a baby, I used to have a much more structured morning routine. But now this is what it looks like. And I'm totally happy for it to look this way. And I, because she's growing so fast, and I know at some point in the not too distant future, she'll, it will look different again. So I, I don't, I try not to get too attached to it being a certain way and just to, you know, be able to go go with the flow of what's happening in my life. Mm, I love that. I have a bonus son who's 13. And so Mm -hmm. we have him for two weeks and then he goes to his mom's for two weeks. And the weeks that we have him, my morning routine looks very different. The same as you, it's very much (laughs) revolved around 
getting him ready for school and making his breakfast and his lunch and sending him off and things like that and just creating my my intention is to create a really beautiful environment for him to wake up into so we diffuse lots of beautiful essential oils and we have some jazz music playing or some yoga or meditation mantras playing which is just really nice to kind of wake up to and I really, you know, want that morning period to be a beautiful memory for him. I remember for myself, it was very much rush and get out of the house and quickly tie your shoes and quickly do this. It was always a bit of a rush. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really am quite intentional about creating as best as I can a beautiful environment for him when he wakes up and before he goes to school. And as well, when he's not there as well, we also do the same mm-hmm. thing. But it's, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just some little things that you can do that really make a difference because there was a time where it was stressful and rushing and come on, get out the door. We've got to do this and put your shoes on, tie your shoes up. And then it just wasn't pleasant for anybody. And all three of us were like, this isn't working and we've got to mm-hmm. shift. And so we've mixed things up a little bit now and it's a lot nicer in the mornings in our house. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm on board with that hundred percent. And we, we also do music and a number of, and I like to just have time to, I mean, she's a bit younger, so she's still mostly like, you know, snuggling with me or sitting on my lap and we just get to have some quiet time where we're connecting and that's so precious. And I feel so grateful that I, I'm able to have that time with her before work starts and, you know, before she starts her day. And then I've set up my life so that I, you know, I, I usually finish by, you know, before she even gets home from her day or, or, you know, not long after that, so that we all get to sit down and have dinner together. That's really important to me and to our family. And I've just been fortunate enough to, to, to be able to set things up in a way that that's possible virtually every night of the week, unless I'm traveling. And because I just know that this is, you know, this is, this time passes so quickly Mm. and I want to be present for as much of it as I can be. Yeah. That's so beautiful. So beautiful. Okay. I've got three rapid fire questions for you now. Are you ready? All right. I'm ready. What's one thing that we can do today for our health? Just spend some time some quiet time, whether that's meditation or taking a walk outside with your shoes off, going down to the beach and sitting and watching the sunset or taking a hike in the woods or just even sitting out in your backyard in the sun for 20 minutes. I think just having some downtime without stimulation is so important. Mm, Beautiful. What's one thing we can do today for our wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Stop complaining. Mm. Yep. I love that. I'll keep that one simple. Yeah. It's a goodie and it's something that we all need to be reminded of. Yeah. Yeah. And the last one is what is one thing we can do for more love in our life? Practice compassion, starting with yourself, because I think when we're able to accept ourselves fully and extend compassion and and love to ourselves and forgive ourselves, then we're also able to extend that to other people. And that opens our heart and opens us up to the love that's already there. Mm, Beautiful. 
Now, is there anything else that you want to share? This has been so jam-packed with goodness and knowledge and wisdom, and I want to thank you so much. But is there anything else that you want to share? Any last parting words of wisdom? I think just this could uh, take us off in a whole other direction. But I, what I've been really fascinated with recently is just learning more about the brain and particularly about neuroplasticity, which is the the recognition in neuroscience now that we can actually change the structure and function of our brain with our behavior, our experiences, and even our thoughts and our emotions. And and you know, it's it's funny because this has been something that you've seen in movies like The Secret and, you know, a lot of what might be called new age sources for many years, but now this is actually being proven in in neuro in, in neuroscience. And Eric Kandel, for example, won the Nobel Prize in a few years back for recognizing that our thoughts and emotions can cause changes in our brain that in turn affect the expression of genes all the way through our body. And so when I was closing my presentation last night about gene expression or during the Q&A period, I, I, I said that and I said that the reason that's so exciting to me is that it's a message of hope. It means that we have a lot more control over our, not just our health, but even who we are, even our personality and things that we thought were relatively unchangeable and, and things like our, the expression of our genes. We actually know now from science that we have a lot of influence and control over those things through the choices that we make on a day-to-day basis, not just about the food we put into our body or, you know, how much we sleep or how much exercise we get, but how we think and feel and treat other people. And that's, to me, that's, that's pretty cool to, that, that we're, you know, science is giving us this, these insights at this point. Mm, Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And I have one more question for you. Sure. I'm a massive believer in service, and I want to know what I personally and the listeners today can do to serve you. How can we serve you today? Just keep spreading this message. You know, I think that's the, the work that we're here to do is to help others to enjoy the benefits that we've all, you know, many of us who are already on this path to some degree have gained from from this. And that's why I keep doing the work that I do. I imagine that's why you do what you do, Melissa, just wanting to give back and share share the wealth, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will do that and share this episode, share the love, share the message. So thank you again so much for being here. I'm so glad we finally were able to do it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's been awesome. And thank you for your amazing work, your podcast, your books. Thank you for everything that you do. And please do let us know when you come to Australia. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. So thank you so much. Will do. Thank you. Melissa. again, take care. Such an epic episode. So many great reminders. And I got so much out of today's show. And if you did too, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And don't forget to come and join the MA Tribe private Facebook group, where you can share your insights from this episode, plus 
tell me who else you want me to get on the show. It's also a very sacred space where we can come together to discuss all things Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide, along with anything else that you feel called to contribute to the open and honest conversation. You will also get some extra love and support personally from me that I won't be offering anywhere else. And one thing that I get asked a lot is, where can I find my soul sisters? Where can I find people that are like-minded? This is it. So head on over to melissaambrosini.com forward slash tribe to join now. And for everything that Chris and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 183. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. Another thing I just wanted to remind you guys of before I go is that if you haven't got my latest book, Open Wide, A Radically Real Guide to Deep Love, Rocking Relationships, and Soulful Sex, all you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash open wide to get your copy now. And whilst you're there, you will get access to my free Open Wide video masterclass that Nick and I created just for you. It's epic and life-changing, so go and check it out. And if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes and leave me that five-star review right now. If you haven't left a review yet, please, please, please do, because it means I can get even more epic people on the show for you. So go and leave that review right now. I'd be so grateful. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best and healthiest and happiest and shiniest version of yourself. You seriously rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this particular episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. Take a screenshot, share it on your social media, email it to them, text it to them, do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.